you know, that, that's just one of several examples where like, hey, point procurement at the thing, that's the goal, um, and you can, you can get there. But it has to be clear and you have to have that conversation so you can't just avoid um, or overlook procurement as a strategic function. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my co-host, Liz Farmer, and we are sponsored as always by the Government Finance Officers Association and Build America Mutual. Liz, welcome back. Always a pleasure. And uh, wondering if there's anything particularly exciting that's happened for you the, the last week. Uh, yeah, well, my son had a baseball game recently, and it was he's nine, he's about to be 10. So he's like in that age where um, it's still kind of going through the mechanics, all the games feel more like scrimmages. But he had a game and where they went long, um, much longer than usual, because no one was on the field afterwards. And it was a like back and forth lead situation. And everyone really really started getting into it like this one of the kids hidden inside the park home run like he blew he completely ignored the signs to slow down to stop at second base and just like blew through it and rounded into home and like the parents are cheering the kids in the dugout are cheering and jumping up and down i mean and best part is that they won um not that it really matters but, but uh it was like one of those moments where you you watch your kid like have a formative experience and being a sports lover. Um, it was especially fun for me to watch. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You get that adrenaline going and it, it doesn't matter uh, if you're keeping score or not, right? Everybody yeah. gets into it and, and takes it in that direction. Well, that's exciting. And uh, hopefully lots more good baseball to come. So we're uh, talking today about procurement, which is uh, not necessarily a topic that people tend to get too excited about, unless you're, of course, a procurement person, but it is a really, really important function and increasingly one that in the world of state and local government tends to find itself in the finance function. In fact, there's a, a lot of procurement shops that live within the uh, CFO's office or in some cases, uh, a you know, the procurement team that kind of grows out of the CFO's office for a, a state or a local government. And so it's always exciting to hear about the evolution of this of this industry and in particular, the fact that in the procurement space, we've seen some real technological transformations, really a space that has gone from being you know, largely a, a back office kind of compliance function to something that we're actually hearing described in, as a, a strategic deployment of resources within government. And one, again, that's really been aided by technology in a way that uh, many of other parts of, of state and local government finance have not. So to tell us about those trends, we're going to have on uh, in just a bit, Muriel Reed, who is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Pavilion that works in the state and local government tech procurement space uh, to tell us all about some of what she's seeing and some of these emerging trends and what it means for state and local public money. Now, Liz, you've done uh, certainly your fair share of work on this, and we've talked on multiple occasions now on this podcast about the way that the federal money, uh, enormous infusion of federal money is going to change not just how much stuff uh, state and local governments are going to be buying over the next few years, but the kinds of things that they're going to be buying. And in many cases, that's going to mean buying goods and services that they've never purchased before. So it makes for a very interesting set of challenges and opportunities around some of these procurement issues. 
You've had some some pretty recent work on this. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been finding as you've been uh, mucking around in the state and local government tech and procurement space. Yeah, we we recently did a, a report at Funkhauser and Associates with uh, the Manhattan Institute just on this very topic on procurement and modernizing it. And I have been writing about modernizing procurement for many years at this point. And, and it's unfortunately um, not, not too much has changed. Uh, but what does, as you know, like what makes this really interesting and, and I think maybe a, a, a turning point here is that federal funding. And you mentioned procurement is often viewed as this back office function. One of the folks in local government that we spoke to said that, told us that when they received their American Rescue Plan funding, none of it was allocated to procurement and the the tech the, the tech agency or department of it um actually slotted took some of their money that they gotten and gave it to procurement recognizing that this is something we should invest in <laughs> you know but that that to me is like the perfect example yeah. of procurement true is really in a lot of places an afterthought and I think with this, what we argue in this report is that with this influx of federal funding that has already begun, um, we really need to change that mindset and use it as something that can be part of actually even making policy. And um, and I think we'll, we'll hear some more about that from Marielle. But um, one of the things I wanted to point out, too, is that we in the report we also talk about standardizing cybersecurity controls that was new to me in, in when i was writing it that idea of knowing what level of cybersecurity controls your vendors have and making sure that that's actually in line with what you as a government need to have that's like a whole again like talk about back office and then afterthoughts i mean that that to me is is something that i really didn't hear a lot about and as we were doing the research for this un uncovered a piece of that so you know i'm really proud of it but it's also i think a high time to really start talking about procurement as something that's more than just what you do after you do all the the interesting stuff <laughs> yeah for sure and the it's funny you mentioned the cybersecurity and procurement nexus because as it turns out in the state of Oregon right now there have been a, a series of uh, cyber attacks against local governments that have been uh, crippling literally taken down entire systems and some of these local governments have reached out to the state for assistance and one of the things there was kind of two important points there one uh, as I understand it the part of the uh, origin of that particular attack was that it was a cyber attack that was brought about by a breach of information vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a series of contractors that some of these local governments had been been working with and so those questions mm -hmm. of integrity and security uh, around procurement and data and you know, cyber security more generally are, are front and center in that case the other really interesting thing that came out of that was that the state does not have the ability under current statute to declare a quote-unquote cyber emergency you can have a, emergencies for all sorts of natural disasters, but nothing that allows for state resources to be deployed the way they would be in response to a flood or a hurricane or whatever it might be uh, in response to a cyber attack. And so that's something that a lot of states are now having to contend with, making sure that they have the enabling legislation to make sure that state resources can move to where they need to move. Again, all getting at the, some of the really core problems around making sure that 
when we're working out in this tech space and we're buying stuff from vendors all over, not only are we doing it most efficiently and effectively, but that we're doing it in a safe and secure way. And it sounds like your work has really put some of those issues front and center as well. Okay, well, we are pleased to have on the Public Money Pod, Mario Reed, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Pavilion. Mario, thanks for taking the time to join us on the Public Money Pod. Yeah, excited to be here. Mario, you uh, have worked in tech. You've worked for the city of San Francisco. You're in tech again. Can you start off by telling us how you found yourself in the, the state and local government procurement space to begin with? Well, like many, I, I didn't dream, um, you know, as a small child of ending up in this space. So I kind of found myself here <laughs> after a, a bit of a winding path. Um, but I think the constant thing has been um, wanting to have uh, social impact at some kind of uh, large scale. That interest actually originally led me to study government and international politics. And then I went into philanthropy and then finally more mission driven tech. But after a few years, I was pulled back to look at government again, just because government really does have both the mandate and truly like the scale as a as an organization. I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you and your listeners, just the scale of government is so mind boggling. And um, so I found myself back in local government after a bit of a winding road uh, and within government, I think in particular within the city and county of San Francisco uh, serving in the mayor's office. I came to really appreciate the, the power of procurement uh, as a strate strategic function to help us you know, deliver impact for residents. And, um, and I saw an opportunity, uh, which sounded pretty crazy at the time, now feels less crazy, to change not only how the city and county of San Francisco does procurement, but actually to be helpful across the country. And yeah, you know, my, my journey so far has been about combining my experiences in tech and in government um, and now getting to build sort of this, this free infrastructure that helps public entities collaborate on procurement. Still kind of early in that journey um, and seeing where it will lead next, but uh, just continue to be hugely motivated by the opportunity for, for social impact. And the more you make procurement work better, the better you can make government work uh, on behalf of all Americans. And it's funny because I think that maybe not everybody thinks would put the word procurement and social impact together. But you said some magic words for me too, which is which is procurement as a strategic function. And I've written about that previously. I mean, a lot of a lot of people in procurement who are also into tech say those things. But I think as a whole, government is like maybe slowly plodding along kind of in that direction. <laughs> so can you um, can you tell us a little about, I guess, maybe with the city of San Francisco, what what procurement as a strategic function means for you? Yeah, um, this is a really tricky one, because I think <laughs> the function of procurement itself and the profession is really evolving quite quickly. But I think maybe for um, listeners overall, you know, just to take a step back and talk about what is procurement, like what, what are the basics of procurement? Generally across the country, you know, spending above a certain dollar amount, um, typically anywhere, you know, city and county of San Francisco, it's $10,000. If you want to buy something above this dollar amount, you have to buy it off of a contract that's been created through a competitively solicited process. So that's the dreaded like RFP request for proposal process. It typically takes anywhere from four to 24 or more months to put a new contract in place, which as you can imagine, just that amount of time um, and all the effort that goes into managing that process is hugely expensive for governments. It's also very expensive for vendors. So I do think there is a sometimes fair reputation um, that procurement has as kind of this red tape 
you know, a function that's always saying no, um, that's overly focused on process and is kind of just going to get in the way. And, and certainly during my time at the city and county of San Francisco, I, I saw how public servants, myself sometimes included, um, tried to avoid procurement, uh, <laughs> you know, not wanting to take whatever you need to procurement because you just expect to get shot down. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Liz. I think this perspective of procurement as, you know, kind of back office, not that strategic, mm -hmm. really misunderstands and overlooks um, the, the power of procurement as a strategic ally. You know, this is where I like to spend even more of my time coming from sort of the more innovation side of things. It's just like, how are we actually leveraging procurement to achieve the policy goals that a particular administration has? And what I mean by that is like, pr procurement can support in different ways. And sometimes again, it, it's helpful to have a policy uh, guideline um, around how you're gonna prioritize within government, right? Because mm -hmm. yes, we want the best, Oh, best value. But we also oftentimes want to prioritize working with local businesses or diverse businesses mm -hmm. and companies and kind of, you know, being more inclusive um, in terms of how we're spending our money. Sometimes we want the like latest and greatest um, thing, and that might involve taking a certain amount of risk. So I think there are conversations that also have to happen between procurement teams and policymakers around, hey, we have a lot of different priorities. Like what's our stack ranking? What do we mm -hmm. care the most about? And when that's really clear, um, you can see procurement drive some pretty incredible value. Again, as an example, like when it, the priority is to help identify local and small businesses and really ruthlessly focus on bringing down the costs of doing business, being a better dance partner um, to those businesses to tell an economic development success story in a region. You know, that, that's just one of several examples where like, hey, point procurement at the thing that's the goal um, and you can, you can get there. But it has to be clear and you have to have that conversation. So you can't just avoid um, or overlook procurement as a strategic function. I love that. Point procurement at the thing that's the goal. That's like the most straightforward <laughs> description I've, I've heard yet <laughs> of uh, using procurement as a, a strategic function. It's hard because like so often these things do conflict. So I think one of the failures is just having different, like any large organization, right? It's really hard to make sure everyone is aligned on like, what what is that stack ranking? What are those sets of priorities? Mm -hmm. What is our government at this particular moment in time truly care about? And um, and are we all aligned uh, in terms of how we're making decisions? Yeah, you have different people sort of rowing in different directions. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of rowing in different directions, I think we've all heard stories of, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of uh, sometimes shotgun marriages between the finance department and the procurement folks. And, and sometimes they're the same people. Sometimes they get put together, uh, whether they want to be together or not. Sometimes what is really what is called procurement is really just reconfiguring policy within the finance shop. Certainly being somebody in the tech space, it seems like there's some ways that maybe technology can help to smooth out some of the rough edges around that relationship. Yeah, I think uh, this one is always really interesting because the point that you bring up is definitely a valid one of like, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the arranged or shotgun marriage is, is a good analogy. I, I think to your point around kind of how technology can help I think there are a couple of different. Um, I think there are a couple of different factors here. One is just you know technology is helping um, procurement teams to be more effective and efficient. So whether your procurement function is like that one analyst or it's a whole massive organization, um, how do you actually help the people in those roles get their work done? And like I said, drive those policy goals and objectives, and maybe even generate revenue. So there's a whole range of of technology that's helping in these different components. So. I think as one example, you know, like technology, there's there's been a sort of proliferation uh, in the last decade or so of um, kind of e-procurement uh, technologies that really help 
teams manage the different stakeholders um, and have better visibility and bring kind of efficiency when it comes to time and costs to um, creating new contracts, right? So um, actually running a process to create a contract, award a contract to a vendor and manage that contract. Again, all of that uh, historically has happened in a really manual way. Delays happen because literally there's like a file that's sitting on someone's desk and it has to be passed around like three or four more times. Um, and, uh, and so I think the visibility um, for leadership that comes with that, along with the just efficiency of like, you know, you get to actually see the work and where everything is going can be powerful. I think some public entities, you know, Miami-Dade County in, in Florida comes to mind, um, are even generating revenue through their procurement function. And I think this is actually a really interesting area of partnership that I expect to see evolve over the coming years as well. So in this instance, you know, Miami-Dade creates a huge number of contracts that its internal departments use, and then uh, neighboring entities and actually entities throughout the state of Florida also oftentimes piggyback on those existing contracts. And the county uh, many years ago decided to actually include a rebate or a discount program in those contracts. So essentially the procurement function, every time it creates something that is useful for other departments or when others outside Miami-Dade County hop on and use that contract, the procurement function actually gets essentially like a, a commission almost, like a, a money back on the power of that contract, which is a really powerful way to align the incentives of that procurement function to produce contracts that are gonna be useful not only for the county, but actually for the entire region. Um, and an interesting kind of marriage also between uh, procurement, which again, is typically seen as that back office function of just like, you know, get stuff through to the lowest possible cost, you know, highest mm -hmm. possible efficiency. And more again, as a strategic function where it's like, what are we actually doing to take those risks, to be innovative, to onboard local vendors, um, to meet those policy goals? And how are we actually kind of like being rewarded and bringing in um, as a source of revenue for the county money when, when you know, taxpayers in other jurisdictions actually find value in what the county has done as well. That's fascinating. Is there um, is there a name for that or a, a, that type of thing? Yeah, the program itself at Miami-Dade is called the User Access Program. It's one that other procurement shops have tried to do, but have lacked kind of the ability to dis effectively distribute and manage contracts, you know, without hiring a large staff. Um, mm -hmm. So again, this is a place where technology can really have an advantage and, and be helpful. It's, it's hard. Um, governments are risk averse, whether that is onboarding a new uh, vendor who is, you know, maybe doesn't have a track record of working with government, maybe in a traditional space, right? Like road salt. We need one more road salt vendor because mm -hmm. all of our road salt vendors are not performing well. They're, they have horrible customer service, whatever it is. If you take a risk and onboard that new vendor, hopefully you know, if those contracts are in place, other public entities can actually piggyback, can actually leverage that contract, work with that vendor, um, you know, at the same or better terms and get access to innovation much faster. But of course, the challenge is um, you've just invested your taxpayer dollar money um, in an innovation that now everyone else gets to benefit from. Um, and you as the public entity don't necessarily get to recoup the value of the sort of R&D that you spent. So you've solved your own problem but you've also unlocked this massive benefit of helping all these public entities also solve this really hard problem. So I think this is one challenge in procurement overall, where like the saying goes, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. And it's like, yeah, that exists. It's <laughs> proven out. Um, but the the challenges at hand in public service, and there, there are a lot of them, and they're going to require innovation. And today, um, our general incentives around how we do innovation um, 
and how procurement, again, plays a strategic role in innovation um, are not very well aligned to tackle those challenges, but they're changing. So that's really exciting. I'm sure that there is an IBM equivalent for road salt somewhere, <laughs> and that's probably who supplies most of the road salt. <laughs> being in, and, and being in Chicago, we we deeply appreciate effective road salt. So that that, yeah. that example resonates uh, resonates with us. Interesting. So when you um you touch on this a, a little bit a second ago, Marilyn, I wonder if we could expand on it a little bit. You know, we hear so much in the public finance space, especially in, in, in all things yeah. having to do with state and local government about technology and the culture of tech and the culture of innovation. And the and certainly as someone who teaches uh, people going into the space, young professionals trying to move into the, the state and local government space, they, they say, gosh, it'd be great if we could have more of that kind of culture of tech or more of that emphasis on innovation in state and local government. You know, in your experience, what gets in the way of that, aside from, as you said, some of the incentives and some of the political considerations that go into the potential, let's say, for failure, but what are the other kind of sources of friction there when you think about bringing that kind of tech culture and culture of innovation into government, whether it's in uh, procurement or, or just in state and local government generally? Yeah, I, I think a couple things here. One is like recognizing which tech culture values are actually valuable in government. So one of the ones I like to think about is like the famous Facebook, like move fast, break things, where it's like, yes, um, moving quickly is is good. Um, government work is very urgent, but breaking things, um, not so helpful uh, when, you know, you turn off, you know, access to like SNAP benefits and all of a sudden uh, families aren't eating for like a month. Like you can't really break uh, government services, you know, and, and so again, like the, the tolerance for risk just kind of has to be different. The, some of the ones that are really effective are like, how do you actually introduce a culture of experimentation, a culture of being more data driven, the, the, the power of kind of thinking about the user's experience. Um, one of the experiences that had a really lasting impression on me at City and County of San Francisco was being part of conversations across, you know, about a dozen different departments that were finally thinking about, okay, we have all these services that we provide, um, people experiencing homelessness, uh, but we've never actually sat down together and mapped out like what is the experience of someone trying to access these various services from these different departments. So that the sort of relentless focus on a great user experience, I think is is so valuable. I, I think honestly, from, from my own experience, um, the thing that gets most in the way is just not having enough folks that have been on both sides of the aisle and can be sort of trust builders and understand where to kind of pull in the experiences and and the the positive stuff from from tech and also the positive stuff from government. I think the focus on like service and the deep empathy with people actually the people who you're trying to serve uh, within government um, is also really powerful. So and in fact we've hired from a lot of programs like the Code for America Fellowship or 18F or the U.S. Digital Service or now um, U.S. Digital Response, which which popped mm -hmm. up in COVID. They really help bring tech people kind of into government. And then also look for opportunities to bring like government people into the tech world. So I remember kind of early on, um, we recruited a few policy students just for summer internships to join our, our startup. Because again, you know, if you're going to go work as um, an analyst for the, the city of San Mateo or, you know, go on and work in state government, having a taste of that like culture and the tech experience, again, can be really powerful for how you go in and approach your, your government work. You had mentioned... Uh... You mentioned Pavilion, uh, Marilyn. Just talk a little bit about how Pavilion fits into the the landscape that we've described here today. 
Oh man. Yeah. I know we don't have enough time. Uh, this is the place where I could really talk uh, for a long time because I'm so passionate about what we're building. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> I was sitting in the city and county of San Francisco, an older millennial surrounded by the sea of sort of like private consumer tech of I could buy groceries or hire a babysitter or plumber <laughs> in just a few seconds. And yet spending millions of dollars um, on behalf of taxpayers on stuff that's way more urgent than what I'm eating for dinner. Um, I was literally like calling and emailing people in my limited network uh, playing this game of go fish, being like, hey, do you have a contract for this? Like, hey, who are you working with to do this thing? And that is just so inefficient and frustrating. So we basically started by aggregating contracts, you know, starting with federal contracts, contracts from state entities that local governments can use, and contracts from what are called national purchasing cooperatives, which are these organizations that actually generate these shareable contracts um, that, that state and local governments across the country can, can use. Um, so we put all those in one place and the, I, the initial value prop was like, hey, instead of opening, you know, six tabs to look for contracts, like just check here. It'll take you 30 seconds and we'll at least be able to show you um, if anything exists that, that can meet your need. And since starting, we've dramatically expanded the number of contracts that we've pulled in. So um, especially introducing more of this local data, which has been incredibly exciting because what we're seeing is like oftentimes there are contract options that already exist. Your neighbor's already done the work. And in fact, especially as we unlock more of these local contracts from you know, smaller local governments, we see that there's a whole new um, set of vendors that have been essentially pre-qualified to do business. And these are not your like large incumbent vendors that you probably think of like serving government, but yeah, actually you're like smaller businesses. Um, they tend to be more diverse. They also tend to provide services um, as well as commodities and not just kind of commodities. Oftentimes the like shareable cooperative contracts tend to be limited to like commodity areas. So think furniture and office supplies. You know, it's been really exciting also to get to see, um, as we were talking about before, some of this innovation, like the speed of acquisition actually power like more innovation um, at a local level. So EV charging comes to mind where it's like, hey, you know, governments have new um, finances to put to work to upgrade infrastructure. So instead of having to go out and figure out, okay, how do we actually do EV charging? What does this look like? How do we build a network? Like being able to leverage the work that other entities have already done um, to onboard actually a whole selection of vendors, make a decision and actually have that technology ready to go like within a year, instead of like just spending two years <laughs> alone on the like procurement, you know, the initial contracting process. Um, that was a very long-winded way of saying Pavilion aims to um, be the go-to spot for public servants to find, use, and share contracts across the country. And we see this as a critical way to bring down the costs of buying and selling. We can onboard new vendors who have been awarded these contracts but have never been able to actually use them. In fact, a lot of these smaller businesses don't even know they've been awarded a contract that they can use to sell to other public entities. And um, there's also an opportunity for public entities, as I said before, to generate revenue when their contracts are utilized widely or they innovate um, in the space as well. So it's, it's been a really exciting journey. I think this idea of like, you know, government is so collaborative, folks are so helpful, but just has lacked the infrastructure to be able to take a look in each other's like filing cabinets um, and learn from those experiences at a really rapid pace. Um, building the technical infrastructure to be able to do that at scale has been really fun. Yeah, that sounds like an immensely helpful thing for, for governments. You also, you mentioned EVs. And one thing I've been thinking about a bit lately and have written about is the level of EV purchasing of not just the electric vehicles themselves, but the the EV infrastructure as well. Um, the federal legislation, especially, particularly the, the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, has given money or given tax credits 
as incentives to purchase all of this stuff. And so I, I wonder, and I don't know if you can answer this, but I wonder, I mean, it, does that create a a huge like rush on the market and for the same thing? Are like all these procurement uh, offices are going to be going after the same thing at the same time? Or how do you, is that something that is manageable? Yeah, it's a good question. I know there's also been um, sort of this tension of like, yes, we want to share you know, because we're, we're public servants and uh, we want to be helpful to each other. We're all kind of in this together. And then certainly during, especially during COVID and, and even now, I mean, with vehicles, that's a great example, you know, supply chain issues continue and like even just finding a vendor who can deliver vehicles, n- not to mention like EV, not, not even like electric, mm. just vehicles, plain old vehicles, period. <laughs> you know, there's like a six plus month waiting list to just buy like, you know, trucks for your public works. But like, how do you help government like be truly be a good dance partner? And I think one of the reasons for for shortages, at least that we've heard from vendors, is um, they don't want to sell to government. Like, given the choice between making a sale to a private entity who's ready to pay right now, you know, not a lot of red tape to go through in terms of process versus like a public entity just figuring out like how to make the transaction is going to mm-hmm. take like a happen feels like it's going to take a couple of months. It's not an appealing proposition. And I think a lot about this because, um, you know, when I was starting Pavilion, I was I was leaving government and I was uh, talking to a lot of very well-known established startups here in the Bay Area. And I, I basically like, you know, sat down with friends who worked at these companies and I was like, why don't you sell the government? And they basically just laughed at me. You know, they were like, we wouldn't, why? Like, we don't know. Like, that's not even a market. I was like, it's a huge market. Come on, like, just try and they were like, it seems terrible. Like we're not interested. And I was just, I, I just, you know, I continue to think to this day around what that means when so much um, talent, obviously not just in tech, but industry more broadly, like isn't even interested at looking. You know, it's two trillion dollars every year um, state and local government spends um, through procurement. Like it's a massive um, sector of our economy, and yet um, it's less competitive than it should be because, again, like real or perceived the barriers to doing business with government feel very high. Um, anything anything else that we didn't get to that uh, you want to go back to, expand on? Well, I realize, yeah, I, I don't think I touched, I know Liz, you actually asked me about like this huge influx of federal money, um, you know, the, <clears throat> the coronavirus aid relief and economic security, the CARES Act, um, ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, um, like all of these different all this federal money um, that's flowing to state and local governments that has to be deployed. So, so I guess maybe this is also related, Justin, to your question around like, I don't know, what's what's kind of happening more broadly in, in tech and, and innovation in government. And um, I just think the macro environment right now is just really exciting. So um, I think you do have this infusion of capital, which is putting more pressure on governments to like think about how to upgrade Um, how they do business, the infrastructure, um, and like put this money to work. So it's a really interesting time in terms of like procurement shops are getting a lot busier um, and they have to figure out how to like deploy that money. And hopefully not just on sort of business as usual, but actually by taking some right-sized risks. And then finally, I know like everyone is kind of, it's grim times um, from a macroeconomic uh, perspective or it feels bad, but I think there's an upside there in terms of like more interest in terms of government from the, from uh, both businesses and actually like the capital side. So, you know, I think as private industry slows a bit more, we've seen more businesses actually turn their attention. And Liz, to your point with your friends being like, no, we don't want to serve government. Like, I think there's an opening because government is still buying and will continue to buy 
um, in uh, private sector companies that haven't previously considered selling to government starting to be more interested in serving government uh, because of the macroeconomic situation. And I've seen the same thing on the investor side as well. You know, it used to be that GovTech was sort of a four-letter four letter word um, <laughs> on the venture ecosystem side. And um, I think there's been new interest, um, again, just because of the macroeconomic situation in looking at uh, software companies, technology companies uh, that serve and, and sell to government customers which again, for an industry that's been sort of anemic over the last couple of decades of this explosion of technology, mm -hmm. I think feels overdue um, for, for government and, and public servants to have access to that caliber of technology. So I don't know, amidst all the sort of like doomsday and naysaying, <laughs> and I suppose this is part of being an entrepreneur anyway, um, I remain sort of like pretty optimistic about what some of these trends are gonna do um, in terms of the quality of being in public service and ultimately the quality of services that Americans get from government. Well, Mary Reed, CEO and co-founder of Pavilion, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today about uh, procurement, government tech, public finance, advances, and everything in between. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Mariel Reed. I really appreciated what she had to say about marrying tech and procurement and kind of meshing as much as possible those two things together. And it that's a, it relates to what this week in the, the ripped from the headlines. And it's from uh, City and State, New York. It's an interview with Lisa Flores, the uh, Chief Procurement Officer of New York City. And the piece is about how New York City is streamlining minority-owned businesses, businesses and women-owned business contracting, or MWBEs. And Lisa Flores talks a lot about talks about recruiting for MWBE contracts and how the city has really made an effort to 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 do that. And and it's done things like a, a video series on all of their social media channels in multiple languages. Um, monthly webinars on how to get started doing business with the city. And she said in this interview that they've already had 2,200 people go through that training, which is pretty impressive. And they also offer in-person workshops in, in communities. And that idea of really kind of considering every possible facet that you can reach a, a, a population that you really want to be to be reaching is is something that we've seen over and over again I think since slash during in the the pandemic this idea of there's a lot of people who are underserved and in this case a lot of businesses that could be doing business with the city um, that aren't because procurement is so darn confusing. <laughs> and so this New York City is not the only place doing this. Um, Long Beach has a really cool example. Long Beach, California is also also did a very similar, like huge, huge, huge effort to reach out to minority owned businesses. And just to the broader point of that, it makes me think about equity issues as well. And not just equity, but economic development. And so Equity being reaching out to more businesses, having, making sure that everybody who wants to play can play. 
And the other part of that is economic development. The more local businesses that do business with you, the government, the better it is for everybody because that money is all staying local. And so everybody, I feel like everybody wins when that happens. And procurement is weird because there are some, you know, there, it's hard to get around at times that requirement to spend the least amount possible and those types of contracts. But where it is possible to target your local businesses and especially the ones that are smaller uh, or minority owned or women owned, if that's your policy goal, procurement really, really can make a difference. And so I've seen it, I'm starting to see more examples of people thinking that way in terms of procurement as part of economic development policy. Yeah, it's a great piece. I'm glad we're having a chance to discuss it. You know, the the thing that that jumped out to me as I was looking at this was I was reminded of some of the things that have happened in the in the kind of ethics space, particularly in the in the ethics and finance space. You know, there's a few I think we've mentioned it maybe before on this podcast, but a few years ago, the Government Finance Officers Association revamped its code of ethics and it, it shifted its code of ethics away from what ethics codes typically are, which is kind of a list of do's and don'ts and ways to avoid conflicts of interest and and uh, keep things transparent and all of those kind of traditional principles of what it means to have an ethical decision-making process. And they really turned that on its head and redefined what it means to have a finance function that is accomplishing its mission. So not just doing the work ethically, but doing it in a way that really is in service of a broader mission. And one of the things that was really interesting was they pointed out how that broader mission is to restore trust in government. It wasn't simply that an effective finance function does things efficiently, does things at the lowest cost, does things quickly. That's all important, but it did make clear that when the finance function is working really well, particularly in local governments, it helps to bolster trust in government. And one of the main ways that it does that is by signaling to taxpayers, signaling to all of the relevant stakeholders within a community. The, the government cares very much about what they have to say, and there's lots of ways to do that. What we're describing here, you know, these efforts to try to leverage technology to more effectively reach out to MWBEs, certainly as, as one key stakeholder group, sort of makes the case that this is a, a concerted effort in a way that hasn't been made before to bring those voices in, to make sure that they're represented in decision-making and everything follows from that. And so I, it was interesting seeing this because it was completely consistent with what the GFOA would recommend as a best practice with respect to not just getting the most vendors in the mix, but in doing something very much in service of a much broader goal, that being to bring more perspectives to government generally, and in turn to try to bolster trust in government. So it was, again, going way beyond procurement as something to do things uh, leaner, faster, better, but uh, procurement as a way to think about government finance and its role in bolstering trust in government. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. Music